Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvotisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Father, please help us and bless us this morning in the study of this parasha. Please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us what you want us to learn and show us what you want us to know. In the name of Messiah Yeshua, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Morning. This week's parasha, it's parasha Vayetzi. It's parasha Vayetzi. And the story of this parasha, it focuses primarily on the, on the life of Jacob and his flight from the land of Canaan uh, to his uncle Laban's household, his Jacob's ladder experience at Bethel, his courtship of Rachel and Leah, and the, and the birth of his sons, the 12 patriarchs of Israel, and finally his reentrance to the land. And this man, Jacob, we see him in this parasha in a variety of different contexts. We see many different facets of his personality, like you or I may have different facets of our personality. So does Jacob. We see Jacob, the holy man. We see Jacob, the shifty, hard bargainer, right? We see Jacob, the romantic man. We see Jacob, the industrious, savvy businessman. We see Jacob, the fatherly family man, right? But in the scripture about Jacob, there's another role that Jacob plays, something he keeps doing, that frequently gets ignored. Now, let me ask you this. Let me all ask you all this. True or false? True or false? While Esau was a strong, manly man, Jacob, he was just a weak, wimpy guy. Is that true or false? You're, most of you are saying false. Some of you may have heard differently, that you might have heard that Esau was the guy who went out and had adventures while Jacob was the homebody. Yes, I would submit to you false, because in this parasha, Jacob, he's shown to be actually quite a strong person because Jacob is a stone mover. Jacob moves stones. No less than three times in this parasha do we see a situation where our father Jacob moves a stone or sets up a heavy stone. And every time he does so, it teaches us something. It shows us something about the God of Israel and about his son, Yeshua the Messiah. So when looking at this parasha, let's start, let's begin with the end, so to speak, and look at... uh, the last verse is Genesis 32, 1 through 3. Do we got that, Robert? By the way, I am terrible with these things. If you cannot hear me, go like this. If I'm speaking too loud, go, go like this, okay? Thank you. Uh, Genesis 32, 1 through 3. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Machanaim, Right? So he's, uh, Jacob, he's returning to the land of Canaan, and he sees this camp of angels, right? Except it's not a camp of angels. The word he uses is machanaim, machanaim. That's the dual number. That means that there's two of something. There were two camps. There were two camps. As he goes to encounter Esau, then it kind of represents the doubleness of him and Esau. There's two camps of angels. 
And the funny thing is that this is a pattern that we see all throughout Genesis, right? Where you have one, you have a one thing, and then all of a sudden, before you know it, that one thing becomes two. That keeps happening over and over again. In the beginning of Genesis, you had Adam. God made Adam. He had one Adam. Hashem looks at this and says, this is no good. So before you know it, boom, there's two. There's Adam and there's Eve, right? And then there was Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, except there wasn't one prom- There was two. There was Isaac and Ishmael, right? And then there was Jacob. He was the patriarch of the people of Israel, except Jacob was a twin. There, was, there wasn't one. There was two. There was Jacob and Esau, right? And then later on in this parasha, Jacob, he, he loves Rachel. He wants his bride, his wife. He, he loves her, and that's his bride, and that's his love, his life, Rachel. is one wife. But all of a sudden, boom, there's two wives. There's, Jacob, there's Rachel, and there's Leah, right? And you keep seeing this over and over again. This continues throughout, throughout Scripture, but even past Scripture, in, in the histories of the Jewish and the Christian peoples, right? That there's one holy people and nation, right? Israel, the kingdom of Israel. God, that's his holy nation. But all of a sudden, boom... There's two nations. There's the kingdom of Israel, and then there's the kingdom of Judah. They split up, and so you have two instead of one, right? And in Judaism, you, can send, you continue to see that, that dualness, that two-ness, over and over again. You go to a Shabbat dinner. What do you see? You see two loaves of bread, right? Or suppose it's Rosh Hashanah, or it's Sukkot, or it's Shavuot, uh, or it's Pesach, and you've got this day, right, this holiday, right? Well, guess what? That day is two days. It's two days long. You keep seeing that over and over again. There's two, there's two, there's two, where you think there should just be one, right? And ultimately, in the big picture sense, who is God's people? Who is God's people? Well, there's, there's two, right? There's, there's the Jewish people, and then there's the Christian people. So we see that, again, that there's kind of two of God's people. David Wine spoke about that a little bit last, uh, last week, going over Jacob and Esau, right? And I submit to you, also today, that if we're reading and studying Scripture, right, that there are two ways of reading Scripture and studying Scripture. One way you can label a Christian way in a broad sense, and one way you can label a Jewish way in a, in a broad sense. Both of these ways of studying Scripture are valid and important, but they are incomplete in and of themselves, as we will see. Uh, one of my ta- favorite preachers and teachers, right, is a man named Jacob Prash, right, and I love the metaphor he uses. He says that the Bible and Scripture, it's like a, a big, thick sewer, uh, stew or soup, right? And if you eat it with just a fork, right, you're, you're going to get those big, meaty chunks, but you're going to miss the broth, the nice, savory, nutritious broth, right? And if you use a spoon, right, you're going to get the broth, but you're going to have trouble handling the big, meaty chunks, right? You need both tools. You need a fork and a spoon to eat this thing, right? Or suppose you got an email, right, and there's an, atta- an image attachment to the email. This happens a lot in my line of work where you got to look at electronic documents forensically, right? They have an email with an image attachment. If you have a text application and you're trying to look at that email, you'll, re- you'll be able to read the text of the email, uh, but if you try to open a text, an image with a text application, what do you get? You get a big line of alphanumeric gobbledygook that you can't really understand. You won't be able to make out the image with just a text application, right? You need both a text application and an image application to read the full message that you got, right? And it's the same way with Scripture, that there's the, the traditional Christian way of studying Scripture is this, is that you basically, you look at the text and you find what's 
what sometimes called proof texting, where you'll look at you'll look at the verses and you'll get from these verses, you'll draw concepts and you'll draw precepts and you draw ideas. Uh, they'll tell you things about God. They'll tell you things about how He relates to man and how mankind should relate to Him. And you take all these concepts and these precepts and these ideas and you formulate them into a systematic set of doctrine and theology that guides a church or a congregation in faith and in practice and worship. Right. That's an important way of studying Scripture. It's, that's one way of studying Scripture that's very important that, that people should do. But there's another import, just as important way of studying Scripture, one you could label midrashically, basically. And what you do is that you look at Scripture and you look at the story, the big picture, not just focus on little texts and proof texts of Scripture, but you look at the story. You look at the big picture that's being painted for you, right? That we have our next slide here. And it's not to say that Christians only do it one way and Jews do it only another way. You can have Christians that can have a very imaginative exegesis of Scripture, and you can have Jews who can actually focus quite quite a lot on the text. It's not the one people only do it one way, the other people do it the other. But it's, it's just important to understand the distinction. We have Yeshua, what they said about Yeshua in Matthew 13. He said, all these things Yeshua spoke to the crowds in parables. And apart from a parable, he wasn't speaking to them in order to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundations of the world. Right? Because God is a great artist. He is a great storyteller. This world is his canvas. This world is his blank page that he uses. And many times when he wants to teach us something, he will tell us a story. He will paint us a picture. And many times that's a lot better way of teaching somebody than just by, by book learning, by, by, just, by just the text, by just laying out the black letter there. It's a lot better way of teaching somebody. And so, Parashavayetzi, what is the story? What is the picture being painted for us? Well, let's, let's take a look at, uh, at what happened at Bethel here at Genesis 28. Have that up? Genesis 28. Then Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He happened upon a certain place and spent the night there, for the sun had set. So he took one of the stones from the place and put it by his head and laid down in that place. I think I missed one. He dreamed all of a sudden there was a stairway set up on the earth, and it stopped reaching the heavens, and behold, angels of God going up and down on it. Surprisingly, Adonai was standing on top of it, and he said, I am Adonai, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your seed. Your seed will be as the dust of the land, and you will birth forth to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, and in your seed. Behold, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not forsake you until I have done what I have promised you. The next... Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Undoubtedly, Adonai is in this place, and I was unaware. So he was afraid and said, How fearsome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This must be the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob got up and took a stone, he's a stone mover, which he had placed by his head, and set it up as a memorial stone and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, though originally the city's name was Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God be with me and watch over me on this way that I am going, and provide me food to eat and clothes to wear, and return in shalom to my father's house, then Adonai will be my God. So this stone which I set up as a memorial stone will become God's house. 
and everything you provide me, I will, give, uh, I will definitely give a tenth of it to you, right? There's a few important things going on in the Scripture, the side items that I want to point out. One is that we got the Tree of Life version of the, uh, that translation of Scripture, which is kind of a new Messianic translation. They say that the stone was by his head. Traditionally, you might hear that stone was under his head, that he was using it as a pillow. And that seems a little strange, right? It might, must be uncomfortable. He's got a stone under his head. So, I mean, you have your, over the, over the centuries and millennia, you got your various Bible scholars and you got your ancient Near East scholars and your uh, rabbis, and they're kind of wondering what exactly what he was doing with his stone. Uh, was it a head support or was it beside his head? Maybe some sort of protection from the elements. That's kind of, there's some debate about exactly what was happening. The second thing is that we had that, um, that you can get the second slide there, that we had that uh, phrase, how fearsome this place is. This is none other than the house of God. This must be the gate of heaven. That is actually, you, you come in through these two entrances, you'll actually see that inscribed uh, over the doorway in gold letters. That's what's written there. How fearsome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This must be the gate of heaven. That's what's written there in Hebrew. A few years back, our former rabbi, Jamie Cowan, he gave this beautiful, just beautiful message, one of the best I've ever heard ever, just about why that decision was made to put that over, over up above. I mean, if you don't like this sermon, you can go home and listen to that sermon. It's actually on his website. Uh, like, this is, this is none other than the house of God. This beautiful sermon that he gave about uh, why the decision that was made. And I love what he said. I'll never forget. He said that when you come in here, something has to happen. That this is this is a God's here in this place. This is the this is the house of God. Something has to happen. There has to be an encounter, and uh, I never forget when he said that. Now the third thing about the, what's going on in this um, in the, uh, in this passage here is that you have this word place over and over. It's it's used a lot. It's used in kind of rapid succession too. The place, the place, the place, the place. Right. The the Hebrew word is is makom. Uh, that keeps being used, the place. It's, it's very distinctly used throughout this whole uh, story and this vision that's, that's related. So what do we make of this? How do we interpret this passage? Well, there's a traditional Christian way of interpreting this part of the Bible, and there's a traditional Jewish way of, of interpreting this passage. But as we'll see, both, both methods, both interpretations, they're, they kind of got loose ends. They're both a little problematic, right? Now, you got the traditional Christian way of interpreting Jacob's vision, right, is that basically this is a demonstration of God's omnipresence. God is everywhere. God was with Jacob. Jacob's, he's fleeing his home. He's away from his family for the first time. He's out there in the wilderness. But God gives him this vision to show him that God is with him, even in the middle of nowhere, that he's with them all the time, right? And this reflects other doctrine, that, other theology and doctrine you can draw from other, other parts of Scripture, right? We have here, I guess, slide five, slide six. We have uh, Jeremiah 23 and 24. It says, can a, man hide, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? In Psalm 139, it says, where can I go from your ruach? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, look, you are there too. If I take wings of the dawn and settle on the other side of the sea, even there you hold, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. That God is everywhere, right? The next slide here, 
I got all kinds of good recommendations, right? A.W. Tozer, extremely good Christian writer, preacher, teacher. The Pursuit of God, extremely good book he wrote. I, I think this thing is basically free on the internet if you want to read something. I think it's like a dollar on Kindle. You could, it's, easy to, it's easy to access. And I love where he talks about um, this passage, right? And he says, what now does the divine eminence mean in, in direct Christian experience? He was a Christian writer. He says, it means simply that God is here. Wherever we are, God is here. There is no place. There can be no place where he is not. If God is present at every point in space, if we cannot go where he is not, cannot even conceive of a, of a place where he is not, why then has not that presence become the one universally celebrated fact of the world? The patriarch Jacob in the waste, howling wilderness gave the answer to that question. He saw a vision of God and cried out in wonder. He said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. Jacob had never been for one small division of a moment outside of the circle of that all-pervading presence, but he knew it not. That was his trouble, and it is ours. Men do not know that God is here. What a difference it, it would make if they knew, right? And also, this isn't to say this is exclusively a, a Christian doctrine. Ju uh, Judaism has a similar doctrine, that one of the, the names uh, for the Lord in, in rabbinic Judaism is actually to call the Lord Hamakom, the place, drawing from, drawing from this parasha that he is the place of the world, but the world is not his place. That comes from the mystical Kabbalah tradition in Judaism, to call him Hamakom. So this is, this is about God's omnipresence, right? That's what this vision was about. Well, here's the problem with reading the passage just like that. It's that basically what good is it to show Jacob this vision if he basically misunderstands it? Because Jacob thinks there's something about the place. He keeps saying that this is an important place. He sets up a stone in that place. He makes a vow saying that stone is going to become God's house. So, I mean, did he make a mistake here? I mean, did he have the wrong place? Did he make a, a vow, he, an oath he shouldn't have made? I mean, it, this is a very momentous passage of Scripture, right? And this is a very important part of Jacob's life, right? And if we interpret it just this way, we're going to think that he, he didn't catch it, that he was making some big mistake. Is he making a mistake here? Well that, well, that brings us to the second traditional way of interpreting this in Judaism, that the rabbis say that Jacob was right, that the specific place he was at was, in fact, important, that God's house would, in fact, be built there, that the place was, he had the right place. However, the rabbis say that he was not at Bethel that he was actually on Mount Moria in Jerusalem. They actually say that. Now, the, you look at this on the map, on these locations, they're basically 10 miles apart. Okay? The, the, how can the rabbis say that he was in Jerusalem when, he, when the text clearly says he was in Bethel? How do they? Well, they use quite a bit of mental gymnastics in kind of coming to that conclusion. Sometimes they'll even wax mystically. I think it was um, Rashi who said that on that night that the mountain the mound of Bethel and, and Mount Moriah, they became magically merged, or all of, all of Israel became um, miraculously merged into that one point in Bethel on that night. And so they'll, they'll use some, some creative midrash in, in trying to say that Bethel was actually Jerusalem. So, but that's, but there's something off there when you say, this, you have Jacob saying, this is another in the house of God, when the house of God's going to be built 10 miles south in Jerusalem, Right? 
So we have a question here. What is this place? What is God's house? What is, what, uh, what's going on? What is God trying to tell us in, the, in, this, in this passage here? We get up slide seven. We could show, uh, I have my, oh, here we are. I got this. I think I'm just going to play with this for like a half hour while you all wait. I'm just, I'm just going to have, what is the, where exactly is Bethel? We well, got it right there. You see where that is? And look at maybe 20 kilometers, 30, 20 miles, 30 kilometers, 20 miles. Look at what's around it. Basically, everything is around it. It is right in the middle of, of everything. It's right in the middle of Israel. And you see that green line there. That shows the approximate borders between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. So Bethel, that was a very interesting site in, uh, in, in biblical history. Uh, that was part of the kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam's kingdom, and he, uh, he infamously set it up a site of false cultic worship there that he shouldn't have done, the sin of Jeroboam. And so that was one of the locations of that. That was the south location, and there was a location in Dan and one in Bethel, right? And uh, later on, the kingdom of Israel falls, and King Josiah, the, one of the last kings of Judah, he actually retakes over this property of Bethel, this, this geographical location. And so he cleans up that area. So control of this city shifted back and forth, and it was right on the border between the two kingdoms, right? So we got a site that is basically right smack dab geographically in the middle of Israel, the same way we might think of Kansas City, Missouri being in the middle of America, or the same way we might think of, I don't know, Richmond or Charlottesville or Fredericksburg being right in the middle of, uh, of, of Virginia, kind of real strategic point, right? And so, what's the picture here? Well, we got Bethel, the very middle of Israel, right? And we have Jacob. He's the very personification of Israel at this place. So, I would propose to you that one kind of plausible way of interpreting this scripture is that Israel is the place, that Israel is the house of God. Not just in a geographical sense, but in the personal sense that that you have Jacob. That uh, he maybe, albeit accidentally, but he's saying that Adonai was in his place, but that he knew it not. That the Lord was always with Jacob, and he knew it not. That Jacob was, in a way, uh, housing God in his person, even though he didn't know it. You know, it's funny we had that parsha. The text of it says, uh, when, as far as the, the staircase, that angels were going up and down on it. If you know anything about how Hebrew works grammatically, that could easily just have been interpreted angels were going up and down on him, on Jacob. So that because Jacob was in, in his body, he is housing all of Israel in a way. He is housing all of the prophets. He's housing all of the kings of Israel. In a matter of speaking, he's even housing Yeshua himself, that Yeshua would be incarnated out of his, out of his genetic offspring, out of his personhood. So that Jacob was the holy place, and he knew it not. So what does Jacob do? Well, he moves a stone. He sets up a stone. What kind of stone? A stone uncut with human hands. And what does he do? He anoints this stone with oil. Okay? This, when he does that, it literally becomes a Messiah stone. It's a Messianic stone. The, the word for Messiah means anointed. The Greek word is Christos, where we, get, where we get the word Christ. This was an anointed stone. 
And what does he say? This stone is going to become God's house. Now, is Jacob, does he have the wrong stone here? Is he incorrect in the stone that he's talking about that's going to become God's house? Well, that depends on what the stone Jacob is talking about or what it represents. Or maybe we should say, who is the stone that Jacob is talking about? Did you have a slide 8 here? It says, Psalm 118, 22, and 23 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And this, you'll see that over, over and over again in the, in the Tanakh and later on in the apostolic writings where this, is, this verse is connected to Yeshua, where the, the stone has Messianic imagery. Remember Daniel 2, when you have Nebuchadnezzar, he has his dream, and he sees the statue and these parts of the statue and all the parts of the statue. They represent all the future kingdoms that are going to rule over the earth and rule over Israel. What happens to that statue? It's destroyed by a stone uncut by human hands, and that stone grows into a mountain and fills the entire earth. So there's some Messianic imagery going on here that ends up being used later in Scripture, right? So I would propose to you that the true stone that Jacob sets up and this, that it, the, this anointed Messiah stone is Yeshua, that he proceeds to establish this stone and set up this stone by founding the people of Israel from which Yeshua would arise. He comes out of Israel and out of the, out of the Jewish people. That is the house of God which Jacob ends up erecting. That's a good plausible way of interpreting that scripture when you use both methods that we talked about. So this is interesting. We got some Messianic imagery here in this parasha. Do we see that anywhere else? Let's continue uh, reading at Genesis 29. We, uh, slide nine. What does it say? Then Jacob lifted up his feet and went to the lands of the people of the east. When he looked, suddenly there was a well in the field, and there were three herds of sheep resting by it. For from that well they would water the flocks. The stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the herds gathered there, they would roll away the stone from the mouth of the well and water the flocks and put the stone back to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they said. So he said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's son? They said, We know. He said to them, Is he well? Well, they said. You've seen well over and over again. (laughs) They said, Look, here comes... His daughter, Rachel, with the flock, he, he said, Since it's still the middle of the day, it's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the flock and let them go graze. But they said, We can't, not until all the flocks are gathered and the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we water the flock. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with the flock that belonged to her father, for she was a shepherdess. She was a working woman. She was busy. Um, and now when, Ra- when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob stepped forward and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Now let me ask you this, guys. Let me ask you this. Can anyone here think of another part of the Bible where there was a stone covering up an opening that was moved when a woman came to that area. Can you think of anywhere else in Scripture where that ends up happening, right? It's, yes, yeah, the, the resurrection, the tomb. The resur- <laughs> uh, you had Mary Magdalene with the other women. They come to the tomb, and it's moved. The stone is moved for her. And they say, do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Yeshua who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said, right? 
So look at the, this picture being painted for you. What the, the story that's kind of being told for you. you. You have Jacob. He moves this stone for this woman, and out comes flowing water, living water, as it were, flowing from this, from this opening for a flock of sheep being shepherded by his bride. You know, the, the, there's... There's some imagery going on here. And in, in the apostolic writings, the, the, who is the bride? The bride of the Messiah is the congregation, is his ecclesia, is his, is his church. It's, the believers are sheep. So, so we're, God's trying to tell us something here in the imagery, in, in, the, in the big picture of this, of this passage, right? Now, needless to say, this is a little weird, right? Isn't this a little strange? We have a Bible here. I think we got one right here. I mean, you got. <laughs> I mean, you got the. You got Genesis, right? You got your Psalms, your prophets. We kind of we were talking about them this morning, and then you got the apostolic writings, right? You got all these different parts of the Bible, right? It's not like the person who wrote Genesis got together with the person who wrote the Psalms and the person who wrote the prophets and the perfect person who wrote the Gospels. It's not like they got together one day and, and got their story straight. He said, I'm going to say this, you're going to say this, and it's all going to sync up. It's going to be this nice, beautiful book. We're going to sell a bunch of copies. We're going to be on the New York Times bestseller. That's not what happened, right? These parts of Scripture were written centuries away from each other, if not millennia away from each other. They were written by people in completely different cultural contexts, many times even in different languages. But they all sync up, and they all tell the same story and paint the same picture. This is strange. This is weird. This, I mean, it shouldn't be able to happen that you're basically almost like some time travel going on here. It's a supernatural. This should not be able to happen in reality as we know it where one chunk of the Bible written a thousand years ago predicts another chunk of the Bible. This, I mean, it might be magical is the wrong word to use, but this is miraculous. This is mirac- it is strong it is evidence it is very strong evidence for God being the God of Israel and for Yeshua being his son his his Messiah that he is governing the affairs of men and nation and nations that he is watching over Israel and he is watching over the Gentiles who worship the God of Israel amen and that brings us to the third time that we see Jacob acting as a stone mover because the story goes on right Jacob goes on. He lives with Uncle Laban in his sheep ranch, right? And basically, for the most part, things are going great in Laban land, okay? Every, sheep are getting shepherded. Daughters are getting married. Sons and grandsons are getting born. Uh, I believe the, the, the verse was uh, Genesis 30, uh, verse 30, that they literally said that the, uh, things were busting at the seams in abundance. And uh, sure, there were some problems, right? You had... Uh, Laban, he was kind of a skinflint. He was kind of shifting around Jacob's salary. And you had the whole forced polygamy thing on Jacob, right? I mean, it's uh, what family is perfect, right? But for the most part, things were going okay for Jacob living away from the land, right? Things were going great until they weren't, (laughs) right? Because Jacob wants to set out on his own. And then both Jacob and Laban, they start getting paranoid about each other because they both know how, how much of, they can cheat each other, right? And then one's going to leave the other nothing if they're not careful. So they come to this mutually agreed to severance agreement. 
and uh, the Lord favored Jacob in the dispute, as Clarine read this morning, that there were some divinely inspired animal husbandry techniques. Jacob wins out. He gets the best sheep of the flock, and Laban gets the worst sheep of the flock. And then what does it say? It's slide 11. What does it say? Genesis 31. It said, Jacob heard the words of Laban's son they were saying. Jacob has taken everything that belongs to our father, and from what belongs to our father, he has made all these riches. And then it says, and I'm going to kind of look at the, the, the language here. Jacob looked at Laban's face, and look, it was not facing him as it was in times past. Jacob looked at Laban's face, and it was not the same as it was in times past. Do you ever hear that have that happen? You know, maybe you got some family, or you got some co-workers, or you got some people you think are your friends, and everything seems to be going right, and then their face changes. They're not looking on you the same way they were before. Something happened. Something went wrong. Terrible. It's terrible when the falling out like that happens. When, when it happens for honest reasons, not because you did anything wrong, but just because of it, it happens. It's terrible when it happens when, to a person. It's even worse when it happens to a whole people, when it happens to the people of Israel, as it's been known to happen in the past, right? Europe in the 1800s, early 1900s, one of the best, place for, one of the best places for a Jew to be living in the world. But, and they grew in sophistication and in wealth and intelligence. Judaism, as we know it, really grew up out of that area. But what happened? Their face changed. Their face changed. And it was trouble. So what does the Lord say to Jacob? Get back to the land of your fathers, and I will be with you. And so he flees from Laban, and Laban comes after them. Now all of a sudden in this chapter, things kind of take a national tone, Right? It introduces Laban, but it doesn't say Laban. It's, it introduces him as Laban the Aramean. And they encounter each other. And if you look at the, on the map of where they end up encountering each other, it's right, Gilead, it's right basically on the border between Israel and Jordan. It's, it's right on, so the same way Bethel was a border place, this, the place where they meet is right on the border between uh, current-day Israeli-Jordan border. It's an important place. So you have... Jacob is the epitome of the Israeli people, and you have Laban the Aramean, who's a type of the, of the Gentile people around them. And so what happens? I mean, they, well, they start blustering at each other. They said, well, you cheated me. You took advantage of me. And then the other guy says, no, you cheated me. You took advantage of me. And they just start blustering and start fighting with each other. So what happens? I mean, did they have a fight? Is there violence here? Is there destruction here? No, because they have a common family bond, right? So what happens? What does Jacob do? Again, he sets up a stone. He sets up one big stone along with a smaller memorial and a kern of smaller stones, right? And we've got that slide. And he calls, he calls, there's a few names they give this site. One is called Witness. The Hebrew word is Galed, Aramaic is Yegar, Sadutha. It's probably where the word uh, Gilead comes from, that, that, that site. And, he all, and Jacob, and they also call this area Mitzpah, which can mean watch point or watch, possibly watchtower or lookout point possibly. And, what, and Laban says this. What does Laban say? He says, may the, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. So what's the picture here? 
Make no mistake that God is watching over the divide between Jew and Gentile, even when we are absent from each other, and not just geographically. There's a lot of ways you can be, that one person could be absent from, one, from another person. You could be absent culturally, you could be a- absent in your way of your thinking, you'd be absent lit- maybe liturgically or confessionally, but there's an absence that one another. May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one each other. God is watching over the divide between Jew and Gentile. He is watching over Israel for the sake of the nations. He is watching over the nations for the sake of Israel. He has been doing so throughout the ages, and he will continue to do so until the age when Yeshua returns, and he reigns over both Israel and all the nations and all the, over the whole earth as, as Lord and King. Amen? So we got three stone movings here. We have, I guess you can label them a religious stone moving, a personal stone moving, and a political stone moving. In each way, it shows us, it teaches us something about the Lord and how he's acting and how he's moving in this earth, both in times past and in the present. 